This is episode 139 of the Dear Discreet Guide podcast. This episode is titled, George R. Stewart's Earth Abides, the Story of Another Literary Disease. And this episode is part of our Sunday series about uh, literary viruses and diseases. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. Today I'm excited to talk about the novel Earth Abides, which was written by George R. Stewart. It's a post-apocalyptic science fiction novel that was published in 1949, and it tells the story of the fall of civilization from in keeping with our series about literary viruses from deadly disease and the emergence of a new culture. Uh, which has some aspects of the old culture, but also lots of new things, too. The story is set in the United States in the 1940s in Berkeley, California, and we'll find out why soon. And it's told by a character, Isherwood Williams, who comes out of the wilderness, uh, actually from the mountains in the Sierra Nevada. And it's funny how many of these books that we're talking about uh, during the pandemic have some relationship to Sierra Nevada, which you know has a, a very special place in my heart. Anyway, he comes out of the mountains and discovers that almost everyone is dead. I'll have a quote here from the first page about how this could have come about. And Stuart writes, If a killing type of virus strain should suddenly arise by mutation, it could, because of the rapid transportation in which we indulge nowadays, be carried to the far corners of the earth and cause the deaths of millions of people. And this is uh, allegedly something that he's run across that was written in 1947. And he goes on to talk about that the time is up for man. And he writes, As for man, there is little reason to think that he can in the long run escape the fate of other creatures. And if there is a biological law of flux and reflux, his situation is now a highly perilous one. During 10,000 years, his numbers have been on the upgrade in spite of wars, pestilences, and famines. This increase in population has become more and more rapid. Biologically, man has for too long a time been rolling an uninterrupted run of sevens. I'm going to quickly whip through the plot here, and uh, again, just forewarning you, lots of spoilers uh, for those of you who are hoping to uh, keep the book uh, to read for a, a quiet day. It's divided into three parts. The first part is World Without End, and Isherwood, who is a graduate student at UC Berkeley, and we'll see why that's funny in a little while, he's studying uh, geography up in the Sierra Nevada And he is sometimes referred to in the book as the, quote, last American. 
Stuart has a lot of interest in names, and so the names in his novel are also very significant. Ish, which is his nickname, is perhaps a reference to Ishi, who is also known as the last wild Indian. It was the name of a person who was apparently the last of his tribe. Uh, But Ish also is a word for man in Hebrew. Ish gets bitten by a rattlesnake and then subsequently gets sick with something kind of like the measles. Stuart has a quote that a notable bacteriologist indicated that the emergence of some new disease had always been a possibility, which had worried the more far-thinking epidemiologists. All right, so Ish recovers and goes uh, back to his home in Berkeley and discovers that civilization has collapsed. Almost everyone is dead. Uh, He gets befriended by a dog named Princess, who sticks with him through most of the book. He sets off on a cross-country trip all the way to New York City looking for fuel and for food. And there's an interesting quote here during that time, a quote, a certain amount of looting, particularly of liquor stores, was reported. He eventually comes back to California where he meets a woman named Emma, or M. And again, remembering Stuart's uh, interest in names, this name... M means mother in Hebrew. It appears as though she is at least partially African-American. And one writer about the book says the author may have been taking a chance with this character because while Isherwood is white, when the book was written, interracial marriages were heavily discouraged in American society. But Ish and M decide uh, to consider themselves married and to raise children. And Ish thinks of her as the mother of nations. And she does, in fact, become the community's mother, uh, letting it grow, uh, but also stepping in to help when nobody else is filling the leadership role. Gradually, other people arrive to join the community, uh, but over time, the electricity fails and certain comforts of quote-unquote civilization recede. And Ish takes it upon himself to try and teach the children basic academics like reading and writing, arithmetic, and uh, geology, but they are not interested. Part two is called Year 22. The kids are flourishing. They're uh, much more in touch with the natural world than previous generations were. When running water fails, apparently they know where to find the streams, which as a Hoosier farm kid, I do have to say I would hope so. But anyway, not to spoil the premise of the book. Ish also notices that the kids are very superstitious. He has a hammer from the old days, and the kids are afraid to touch it. They think of it kind of as a symbol of the olden times and a symbol of the gods. And there's this interesting quote. It had been a great thing in those old times to be an American. You had been deeply conscious of being one of a great nation. It was no mere matter of pride, but also there went with it a profound sense of confidence and security in life and a comradeship of millions. Some of the older kids return from a trip with a guy named Charlie, who's from Los Angeles, and uh, he turns out to be quite the evil character in case you thought that it was a new phenomenon that evil always comes from Southern California. It certainly dates back to this book. 
He is a carrier of typhoid fever, as if being from L.A. wasn't bad enough, and he admits when he's drunk that he's had many of, quote, Cupid's diseases, and he also hits on a mentally disabled girl. And as if all of that wasn't enough, he also has a gun. The name Charlie is interesting. We'll talk in a few minutes about uh, Stephen King's inspiration of Earth Abides for his book, The Stand, that we talked about a few weeks ago. And there's a character named Charlie in The Stand who is also a pivotal. He's not an evil character, but he is featured at the very beginning of the book and the miniseries. You may remember where there is a person guarding a post or army research facility, and he flees. And he manages to evade his pursuers. Little does he know he is a carrier of uh, the virus. And so he, as he is successfully evading his pursuers, he's also spreading the disease all the way from California across to Texas. All right, so back to Earth Abides. The typhoid fever kills many of the people in the community, including, heartbreakingly, Isha's favorite son, Joey, who was the only one who had shown any interest in uh, academics, reading and writing. And Ish realizes that he can't restore civilization, that at best he might be able to convey some basic survival skills. Over time, the community grows corn and hunts with bows and arrows, and Ish still has his hammer and presides over meetings, but now at his advanced age, his ideas go largely ignored. In part three is called The Last American, Ish has grown very feeble, he's very elderly now, and can barely see, and he spends most of his waking hours in a fog. The tribe continues to hunt with bows and arrows and with dogs, and Ish is visited by his great-grandson, whose name is Jack. Jack shows him that uh, the gun really isn't very useful anymore because the cartridges don't work, and that uh, the bow and arrow has become a much more useful tool. And Ish realizes that this is the end of civilization, but he hopes that the new world will not uh, repeat the mistakes of the old one. Again, a theme that is taken up in the stand. And there's a cynical quote here from a British guy. Man has been growing more stupid for several thousand years. I myself shall waste no tears at his demise. Stuart did a lot of research to think about how the quote-unquote comforts of civilization would collapse over time and also speculated about what skills would persist, like whether anyone would know how to restore electricity or running water or even, obviously, whether reading would endure. And he comes to the conclusion that when a society is so small that the death of one member, like the death of his son Joey, seems likely to determine for many generations to come whether the emerging society will or won't be literate. A very interesting observation when we have such a large population today. And as Ish thinks of it, each new baby is a candle lit against the dark. He also predicts that racism will die out as uh, his marriage to M would have allowed There's a speculation that when there are fewer partners to choose from, mankind will not be able to afford to be choosy in picking one's partners. And personally, I'm not so sure about that. Racism seems to be pretty persistent. 
wanted to give you a little bit of an example here of his writing, which I find quite thoughtful. This we do not hastily. This we do not in passion. This we do without hatred. This is not the battle when a man strikes fiercely and fear drives him on. This is not the hot quarrel when two strive for place or the love of a woman. Not the rope, wet the axe, pour the poison, pile the faggots. This is the one who killed his fellow unprovoked. This is the one who stole the child away. This is the one who spat upon the image of our God. This is the one who leagued himself with the devil to be a witch. This is the one who corrupted our youth. This is the one who told the enemy of our secret places. We are afraid, but we do not talk of fear. We have many deep thoughts and doubts, but we do not speak them. We say justice. We say the law. We say we the people. We say the state. Earth Abides won the first International Fantasy Award in 1951, and I have to say this book turns out to be extremely famous and had a tremendous uh, reception. And some comments here from some reviewers, James Salis, who is the crime novelist whose protagonist is Lou Griffin, and he also wrote uh, Drive, if you remember that novel. So he wrote in 2003 in the Boston Globe about Earth Abides. This is a book, mind you, that I'd place not only among the greatest science fiction, but among our very best novels. Each time I read it, I'm profoundly affected, affected in a way only the great art, Ulysses, Matisse, or Beethoven's symphonies say, affects me, epic in sweep, centering on the person of Isherwood Williams, Earth Abides proves a kind of anti-history, relating the story of humankind backwards from ever more abstract civilization to Stone Age primitivism. And then another reviewer uh, from the science fiction magazine Astounding, P. Schuler Miller, identified the novel as one of the first regarding a, quote, young and little understood science, the science of ecology. And he praised him for the intricacy of detail in which he worked out uh, ecological problems and also for writing. I thought this was a kind of interesting, quote, quietly with very few peaks of melodrama as seem necessary in much popular fiction. Yes, uh, times have changed. And then Earth Abides was also mentioned in a serious overview of science fiction in which it was described as an excellent example of the utopian theme of rebuilding after a Holocaust, leaving but few survivors. Others have described it as a persuasive answer to the question, what is man? And the uh, magazine Anthropology and Science Fiction concluded that it shows Quote, man is man, be he civilized or tribal. Stuart shows us that a tribal hunting culture is just as valid and real to its members as civilization is to us. In another magazine, the American Quarter, George R. Stewart is described as a, quote, humanist in the old classical sense. And they go on to say his novel Stormfire, East of the Giants, 
Earth Abides demonstrate the complex interlocking of topography, climate, and human society, and their general tone is objective and optimistic. Earth Abides was Stuart's only work of science fiction, and there's kind of a funny reference in the book to Robinson Crusoe and Swiss Family Robinson. So Ish compares the situations in that book to what he is going through says that he finds Robinson Crusoe less appealing because, quote, his religious preoccupation seemed boring and rather silly. And then also he looks at the ship in the Swiss family Robinson as a, quote, infinite grab bag from which at any time they might take exactly what they wanted. I always find it amusing when science fiction writers criticize other science fiction writers for not being realistic. On the other hand, as I say, this was Stuart's first science fiction book, and he certainly did a lot of research, uh, so perhaps he's justified in his uh, criticism. A bit of biography here about him. He was born in 1890 and lived until 1980, and if those dates sound familiar, they're actually very similar to Catherine M. Ann Porter, who we talked about also a few weeks ago, who lived from 1890 to 1980, and they actually died within a month of each other. And I mentioned then, and I'll mention it again, you know, for for people who lived during that time period, it must have just been astonishing them to see the growth in civilization, especially in tools and technology. He was the son of an engineer and a citrus grower in Southern California. Uh, He got a bachelor's from Princeton, a master's from UC Berkeley, and a PhD in English literature from Columbia. And he took a position as an English professor at UC Berkeley in 1923. And I do have to wonder if someone of that background could have that kind of route through academia today. Just curious. He was a historian, a toponymist, which means somebody who's very interested in names, and a novelist. Uh, He's written four books on names, the most famous of which was Names on the Land, a historical account of place naming in the U.S., and he was a founding member of the American Name Society. He took a number of cross-country drives in 1924 and 1949 and 1950. Again, just fascinating to think about the differences that he saw uh, during his lifetime on those trips. And he's mostly known for this novel, Earth Abides, but he's really written a lot of uh, very interesting books, very diverse. His PhD, for example, was on a poetic meter of ballads. He also wrote about Bret Hart, who was a poet who wrote about the uh, California gold rush, probably gave him some background on the Sierra Nevada. He also wrote Ordeal by Hunger, which was the story of the Donner Party and probably got him thinking about the collapse of civilization when the chips are down. And also the opening of the California Trail, which was the story of the Stevens Party, who opened that pass, or sort of opened that pass, that would lead eventually to the disaster of the Donner Party, and another book to California by Covered Wagon. Very interested in the American West. He also wrote about Gettysburg, and much of his work was about American history, but always in the context of people intersecting with their physical and social environments. He wrote an essay called Not As Rich As You Think in 1968, which was an early essay on environmentalism. 
And his Wikipedia page, which I suspect was written by a big fan, uh, mentions that achievements of this stature should have earned Stuart a lasting reputation as one of America's greatest writers and men of letters. And the Wikipedia editors have uh, added a little notation here, citation needed. Uh, anyway, the fan goes on to say, however, the significance of his output was largely overlooked during his lifetime and now is almost forgotten. He wrote several novels, one called Storm, which takes on as its protagonist a Pacific storm named Maria, and it examines the consequences of a really large-scale environmental disaster. The storm is reviewed from both sides of Donner Pass. And there's another novel called Fire, which you can guess what that's about. There is a biography that's been written about him by Donald M. Scott. It's called Life and Truth of George R. Stewart. And he uh, mentions, quote, this exceptional scholar author penned some of the most remarkable literary works of the 20th century, inventing several types of books along the way, including the road geography book, micro history, place name history, ecological history, and the ecological novel. He says, by weaving human and natural sciences and history into his books, Stuart created works with a multidisciplinary perspective on events and places that influenced numerous other scientists, artists, and writers, including Stephen King and Greg Baer, who wrote a book called a blood Music, which is a kind of an interesting book about a different kind of contagion uh, that goes from person to person. Maybe we'll talk about that another day. It's quite creepy. And Paige Stegner, who wrote about the American West along with his father, uh, Wallace Stegner. In Stewart's personal life, he married a woman named Ted, and they had two children called Jack and Jill. And the cover of the biography shows Stuart standing next to a woman who's sitting on an ostrich. Uh, So definitely more to learn about this man and his wife. The legacy of the book is very interesting. King, Stephen King, has acknowledged it as inspiration for The Stand. And several songs have been written called Earth Abides, which you can find on YouTube. Um, I didn't find any that were particularly great. One is from Wyndham Hill which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, um, but I often find myself, especially when listening to their Christmas music, kind of thinking, come on, come on, get on with it. It's a bit like that. There's one from 1988, which is kind of interesting, by Canadian J. Randall Murphy, and it actually features some shots of dead fish and pollution and even some policemen beating up on an African-American, which seems appropriate. Jimi Hendrix apparently really liked Earth Abides and said his song, Third Stone from the Sun, was inspired by the novel. And there's a short story writer, Mark Leslie, who used a quote from the book at the beginning of his Twilight Zone short story uh, called Browsers. And the quote is used uh, from a scene where Ish brings Joey to a library uh, at the, quote, end of the world. It's now an abandoned city library. And the quote from the book is, the stimulation of seeing so many books so suddenly was almost more than was good for the frail little boy. 
Leslie's story is about a bookstore that acts kind of like a Venus flytrap and uh, captures the book lovers. So uh, beware, you literary freaks out there. Earth Abides is also cited as a main inspiration for the video game The Last of Us. And this caught my eye, being the mother of several gamers. Now, the games that I'm familiar with, you can mostly count on the fingers of one hand, and they go back to Minecraft and Grand Theft Auto, League of Legends, and and even StarCraft. Less familiar with the new ones like Fortnite. Uh, But I was intrigued enough to go look at The Last of Us, and who knew This is a really important video game. So a few things from its Wikipedia page. Uh, It was announced in December of 2011 and uh, created great anticipation. And it was released in June of 2013 for PlayStation 3 and then PlayStation 4 the next year. And it received a lot of critical acclaim uh, for its narrative, its gameplay, its visuals, all kinds of things, depiction of female characters. It became one of the best-selling video games of all time, sold 1.3 million units in its first week, and 17 million by April of 2018. It won all kinds of accolades, Game of the Year awards, and is now considered one of the greatest video games ever made. Okay, so get this. It's an action-adventure game, and uh, you can play it online uh, in multiplayer mode. Uh, So up to eight players can engage in this cooperative and competitive play. The players control a person named Joel, who's a smuggler who's tasked with escorting a teenage girl, Ellie, across a post-apocalyptic United States. And it's played from the third-person perspective. Uh, Players get to use firearms and improvised weapons, and they can use stealth to defend against hostile humans and cannibalistic creatures who are infected with a mutated strain of a kind of fungus. I couldn't help but think what Dr. Stewart would have thought about that game. All right, I'm going to bring all this to a close now. After several nights of violence across our country, perhaps we can find solace in the book's ending line, men come and go, but earth abides. I hope that's true. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. 
please take care and let's talk again soon.